Well, if you would, I would like to ask that you would open up your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk. To the book of Habakkuk. It's in the back of the Old Testament, Minor Prophets. I'll give you a minute to find it. The book of Habakkuk is after the books of Micah and Nahum, and before the small books of Zephaniah and Haggai. We're going to spend a good part of our time this morning here in Habakkuk. There is a lot that I want us to see. Uh, We'll be reading several verses, so I want to make sure you have your Bibles open so that you can follow along as we read these I want you to imagine for a moment that you are a citizen of Judah living about 600 years before the first Christmas, before the coming of Christ. Maybe you live in Jerusalem. There used to be 12 tribes of Israel and they all formed one kingdom, but After the reign of Solomon, there came this period in which the kingdom split in half and and ten tribes formed the northern kingdom and they took the name Israel. And you're a part of the two tribes that created a southern kingdom called Judah. A little more than a hundred years ago, those ten tribes, that northern kingdom of Israel, was utterly destroyed by a big army of Assyrians. Many of these people were taken into captivity. They were relocated into different places throughout the Assyrian Empire. They were forced to lose their own customs and their own culture and were required to take on the customs and the culture of where they now lived. And from that point forward, there never again was those ten tribes of Israel. They cease to exist. And here you are, part of Judah. And for a while, your folks wondered and worried about whether or not the Assyrians might come and conquer you as well. But now that's no longer the fear. It's not the Assyrians you're afraid of anymore. It's the Babylonians. Chaldeans, as they are known. They have defeated the Assyrians. They are now the big empire. And it just might be that they are interested in coming to Jerusalem, to Judah, and taking it for themselves. In the midst of this situation, steps the prophet Habakkuk. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. He's describing here your land, your home, Judah. He's describing your people. And the prophet Habakkuk sees wickedness 
in Judah. And he cries out to God and he says, God, how long are you going to let this wickedness stand before you come and judge your people? Look at how God answers Habakkuk in verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 5. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. God's answer to Habakkuk is, judgment is coming. I am bringing the Chaldeans to Judah, and Judah will never stand against them. They are too mighty. There is a terrible day of judgment coming on you, O Judah. But wait a minute. This this can't be right. That, That doesn't make any sense. I mean, yes, Judah has been acting very wickedly. Absolutely, God. But it's not like the Chaldeans are holy men themselves. The Chaldeans are far worse, aren't they? I mean, they're, they're barbaric. They're, they are known for their violence and their outright paganism, their worship of false gods. God, how, how does it make sense that you're going to curse your people and bless these wicked people of Babylon? Why are you going to give your people into the hand of these pagans? How can you possibly bless them? How is it, God, that you will not stop this terrible thing? That's what Habakkuk wants to know. Look at verse 13. Chapter 1, verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Habakkuk goes on to say that it's as if God has made all mankind like fish in the sea. And the Chaldeans are a fisherman, and he drops his net, and he pulls up nation after nation, and he kills them, feeds off them, and lives off of them. Look at verse 14. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of... He, by the way, is is the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. 
Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? God, will you not stop this? How can you watch so many suffer and die at the hands of this cruel people? Aren't you a holy God? This doesn't seem just. What do you think God's response is to Habakkuk? God declares that the Chaldeans too will have their day of judgment. Today, even as they act in blind, violent arrogance, God is only using them as an instrument of His judgment. But they too will have their day. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. Chapter 2, verse 15. This is directed towards the Chaldeans. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. That's God's Word to the Chaldeans. Let there be no doubt, Babylon's day of judgment is coming. But what's really interesting here and what we need to see is that there is one particular aspect of the Chaldeans that is extremely reprehensible to God. There is much about the lifestyle and the the acts of the Chaldeans that is sinful, but there is this one thing that is particularly focused on in this book when God speaks against the Chaldeans. It is the root of all their evil. It is ultimately the reason God's judgment will fall on them. And it's this. It's their pride. It's the pride of the Chaldeans. Over and over again, God rebukes their pride. Look at Habakkuk 2, 12 through 14. Verse 12, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Babylon. Is that what it says? Oh no. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh, the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Chaldeans, you think your glory is great? You think that by violence you're going to somehow build all these new cities and spread the glory of your kingdom from one edge of the earth to the end to the next? Your plan shall fail. For there is coming a day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, not your gods, Babylon. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Look at verse 16. The cup 
in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. Chaldeans, you think it's you that's doing all these things? Do you not see that you are pawns in the hand of God? It's the cup of His wrath, not yours, that's being poured out on these nations. And before too long, that cup is going to come around to you too. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, Chaldeans. One more example. Look at verse 18. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Chaldeans, you worship false gods. You glorify them for your victories. These wooden things, you drop them on the ground and they break. That's what you give the glory to. Yahweh is in His holy temple. Let all the earth, including you, Babylon, let all the earth be silent before Him. What's this all about? What is the book of Habakkuk meant to teach us? It is meant to teach us not to put our faith in ourselves, but to put our faith in God. It's teach us to put away our pride and to realize that we must rest in His sovereign hands. If He does not have mercy, we have no hope. Habakkuk is a book that teaches humble faith. It tells us to humble ourselves before God and trust in Him, not ourselves. Trust God, not yourself. That's the message of the book of Habakkuk. And the key verse is chapter 2, verse 4. Chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, His, Babylon's, soul is puffed up. We use that language, don't we? Puffed up? You know what that means arrogant, full of themselves. His soul is puffed up, not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. The first part of the verse is about the Chaldeans. And it's about billions of people on our earth today. And it may be about some people in, our, in this room. I hope not. His soul is puffed up. Pride. Arrogance. Thinking that he or she has what they need to be right with God. Self-sufficient. Depending on self. What does God say about such a person? His soul is not upright within him. A person who depends on self, who leans on self, who thinks they have what they need in of themselves to be right with God, is declared wicked by God. That person's soul is messed up. It is not upright within them. It's a wicked soul. It is sin. Twisted, sickening, destructive sin. 
to think in your heart that you have what you need within yourself and that you do not need your Creator. How foolish. When we are breathing oxygen we did not make, living in bodies we did not create, using talents and abilities we did not give ourselves, working in a world we did not design, heading into a future we do not know and cannot control, to think it is better and wiser to rely on self rather than God. That is sheer foolishness. The person that does that is unrighteous. But there is such a thing as a righteous person. No, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is the same Bible that says there are none good, no, not one. Right? All your righteousnesses are like filthy rags. So how can there be someone righteous? And yet we come to chapter 2, verse 4, and what does the second line say? But the righteous. We have righteous people. How did we get righteous people? That doesn't make, make sense. Aren't, aren't all sinners... Somehow we have these, these righteous people, and, and we're told that this righteous person shall live by his faith. So we have a person who depends on himself, a person who's puffed up and self-sufficient, and that person is declared unrighteous. And, and then we have a person who, who does not live that way, but believes in God, trusts God, humbles himself and, and relies upon God, and that person is called a righteous person. So what we see here is that a righteous person is not someone who is righteous in and of themselves. Only Jesus. Only Jesus lived on this earth righteous in and of himself. The righteous person in the Bible is not a person who is righteous in and of themselves, but it is a person who trusts God and relies on God. And because of his or her faith in God, that person is declared righteous in God's sight. Friends, will we go to heaven without righteousness? No. This is what we lack. This is what we need. We need to be righteous before God, but we are not righteous before God. And yet this Bible, this book, seems to say that those who trust in God are declared righteous. And that is the gospel truth of Habakkuk, that those who turn away from self to God are declared righteous in His sight. And that is what the Apostle Paul saw in this book. This is what the Apostle Paul saw throughout the Old Testament. And this is where he gets his gospel in Romans 1, verse 17. Go with me to Romans 1, verse 17. Do you remember what Paul said at the very beginning of this letter? Paul told us that he was set apart for the gospel, a gospel which was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Paul said, I'm not teaching a new gospel. This is not something novel. This is, this is an old gospel. This is an ancient gospel. It's a glorious gospel, but you can find it in the prophets. Prophets like Habakkuk. Last week we saw in verse 17, last Sunday night, how the gospel saves. 
Namely, that when someone comes and, and, and preaches or teaches or sings or shares, or, but somehow the, the message of Christ crucified is communicated and a person hears that and believes that God's righteousness is what we need. We don't have it. We must be righteous to go to heaven and we don't have it. In the gospel, as it's believed, God's righteousness is revealed to us. It comes to us. It is for us. It is credited to us. It is accounted to us. We are declared righteous in His sight by faith. And Paul gives Habakkuk 2.4 as his proof. Look at Romans 1 verse 17. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. Folks, this is the essence of Christianity. Every other religion says that in order for you to be right with their God, you must find some way to be righteous in and of yourself. Either your good works must outweigh your bad works, or you must do penance, or you must do something, but you've got to make yourself righteous before God. Only Christianity says righteousness is a gift given to you. All you have to do is receive it by faith. And it only works because of Jesus. It's His righteousness. He, he came and lived for 33 years, and that wasn't about nothing. He was living the righteousness that is now credited to us when we believe. Just as it's our unrighteousness that was credited to Him on the cross. I'm forgiven because He was forsaken. I'm accepted. He was condemned. On the cross, He took our unrighteousness and the curse that came with it. And now by faith, when we trust in Him, His righteousness comes to us with all the blessings that come with it. And it all happens by faith. And so here's the vital question for every one of us in this room. What is the state of your soul? Is your soul puffed up? depending upon self, somehow believing that you have what you need to be right with God. Maybe you're depending on your supposed goodness. Maybe you're depending on the fact that you go to church. Maybe you're depending on the fact that you're from a family of Christians. Maybe you're depending on the fact that you're not as bad as some other people you know. But if you're depending on anything outside of the sheer mercy of God, you're depending on a false hope, and it will fail you in the end. It is wicked, so wicked, to depend on anything but God for salvation. Is He not good is he not wise? Is he not willing and able to save you? 
Did he not do everything that was necessary, including sacrificing his own son, that you would be saved? Would you spit in the face of Christ and turn elsewhere? Would you refuse the free gift of salvation that came to you at such a great cost and say, no thanks, I'll try and find my own way? When there is no other way, Humble yourself. Acknowledge with joy that you are helpless to make yourself righteous. Receive the free gift of salvation by going to Jesus and depending on Him alone. The righteous shall live by faith. Okay. We're almost done with verse 17. But we're not quite done yet. We have this glorious gospel truth. It's the truth in which we stand. It's the truth in which we have hope. It's the truth in which we rest. God's righteousness given to me is a free gift by faith. But we have this middle phrase, don't we? From faith. For faith. What does that mean? So I'm, I'm sitting with a friend, you know, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm sitting down in a coffee shop maybe, and I'm sharing the gospel with them. And they, they're hearing the gospel. And as they hear the gospel, they're believing. And as they believe, we're told that God's righteousness is coming to them, for them. That God's righteousness is being given to them from faith for faith. What does that mean? Some think, it might, might be true, that what, what Paul is simply saying is, it's all of faith. <laughs> it's faith from first to last, from beginning to end. It's faith, faith, and only faith, and nothing else but faith. <laughs> right? From faith for faith. It's at the beginning, it's the end. It's all of faith. That is, don't try and add anything else to the equation. Don't try and say, I'm saved by faith in Christ and whatever your and might be. Don't diminish the work of Christ on the cross. Don't take away from its perfection. Don't take away from its sufficiency. Don't take away from the glory of it all. Everything that was needed happened in Christ's life, death, resurrection. It comes to you as a free gift. Your works are not needed. It is from faith, for faith. It is all of faith. absolutely true. Amen? But I do think Paul is saying more than that here. That's, I mean, if he wanted to say that, he could have just said, by faith alone. But he doesn't. He uses this strange phrase, from faith, for faith. And remember, he's explaining how the gospel saves. I'm taking my cue here from 2 Corinthians 2.16. You can write that down, go home and look at it. He uses a very similar kind of phrase, 2 Corinthians 2.16. He uses phrases similar to this one. So here's what I think he's saying. I think he's saying that the righteousness that God gives to us comes on the basis of faith, that's from faith, and for the progression I know this is maybe not the easiest. Listen carefully. 
That is, we are declared righteous in God's sight by faith. And because of this, the Spirit comes into our lives and gives us more faith and more faith and more faith. It comes to us from faith. And now that we are declared righteous, it comes for more faith as we go out throughout the Christian life. Because I have been declared righteous by faith, the Holy Spirit comes into unholy me. How? Only because I've been declared righteous. And now the Holy Spirit begins this process of growing and growing my faith, bringing my faith to its fullness so that I begin to live by faith. It isn't just that I believed once when I was eight years old. That moment, that very first moment of faith happened for faith. That is, it happened so that the rest of my life would be lived in faith. It happened so that the Spirit could righteously come within me and begin to give me more faith throughout the rest of my life, growing in my dependence upon God, growing in my love for God. It's not about just one moment in time. It's about a million moments in time. The righteous shall live by faith. Not, not live for a moment. Not, not, I believe. No, we have to live by faith every day. We go to work. We go to Target. We go to Cracker Barrel. We go to our friend's house. We go to school. We go to church. And everywhere we are, Every moment of our lives, we are living in faith. We are, we're here and we're there. We're everywhere we are. We're trusting that God is our Father. We are His child and He's caring for us. And we're depending on Him through Christ. We walk this way. We live by faith. And the only reason that faith is in me or is in you is because of the Holy Spirit who gives it to us. And the only reason the Holy Spirit can dwell inside of me and inside of you and give you that faith every moment of every day is because of that first moment when you heard the gospel and by grace believed you were declared righteous in the sight of God and the Holy Spirit could then justly enter unholy you and unholy me. Who is it that will go to heaven? It is not those who merely believe for a moment. It is those who persevere to the end. Those who endure to the end will be saved, the Bible tells us. So how is God going to keep me saved? If I go to the doctor tomorrow and he tells me I have cancer, I might decide then and there to turn against God to decide that I hate the Lord Jesus Christ, to decide it's all been a, a, a lie and I'm going to leave it all. How is God going to keep me saved? I can't, I'm not going to keep me saved. I can't. He's going to keep me saved by the power of the Holy Spirit within me. Granting me faith every moment of every day. And it's only possible because of that first moment. When I was born again when my eyes were open and I believed on Christ and I was declared righteous in His sight. So the Holy Spirit came into my life and began this process of sustaining me and bringing me to the end. 
because I was justified, I am being sanctified and will one day be glorified. And in the end, I will be with the God who saved me forever. That's what I understand the Bible to teach. I have staked my soul on that. It's what I'm standing on. What are you standing on? Let's pray.